Okay, you should be making your way to Luke chapter 22, please. Luke 22, today we'll be meditating together on verses 35 to 53. Let's begin by reading the heart of this passage, verses 39 to 46. We'll read the rest of it as we go through. It says, And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an, in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for prayer. Thank you that we may come to you through Jesus, by your Spirit, to your throne of grace, and bring to you every request, every petition from your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to the small things. Give us this day our daily bread. Father, I pray that we would be the kind of people who do not neglect this communion with you, but we would pour out our hearts before you with the confession, God is a refuge for us. Father, I know that so often we can become so weary, even with trials, that we neglect to pray. Even when we might think, okay, now is the time we cry out, our hearts can become calloused toward you, can become numb, and we can fall into all kinds of doubt and disbelief. May we be a praying people, Father, because even if we are at our weakness, weakest in prayer, Father, we triumph as we pray. We triumph, we rise up, and the enemy flees. So help us to pray. May it be all of our strength and our defense. And this, In this moment, Father, I ask that You would give to us Your Holy Spirit, that we may take Your Word to heart and give such a response that You are truly glorified by what, by what You see and what You hear in Your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, we get such an incredible clear view into the heart of our Lord Jesus Christ. We see human struggle and we see human weakness and we see a very human agony. And we see our Lord Jesus Christ hold on to the Father and the Father hold on to Him and we see Jesus Christ prevail in prayer. And it stands in such stark contrast to everybody else around him, particularly to these disciples who would in this moment fail to pray and instead trust in the sword to be their defense. But Jesus prevails 
and He makes the way for us to be saved. In the Christian life, suppose there are so many things you could boil it down to, but let me boil it down to these three things. Behold your Savior. Believe in Him for your salvation and become as He is, as God requires. Behold your Savior. Believe in Him for all your salvation and become as He is, as God requires. And so there's so much here that we admire Jesus as He prevails in these the spiritual onslaught. And there's so much to take on and, and conform to ourselves as the disciples would, but they learn certainly the hard way, hard way. This is the way that we must live our lives. We prevail if we pray. Whether we are as well as can be or whether we are as weak as can be, we prevail if we pray, no matter what happens. Let's begin with verses 35 to 38. This is the end of the Passover meal, his final instructions, and then they are going to leave from here. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? I was back in chapters 9 and 10 when he sent them on mission. They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. The world is going to treat Jesus Christ as a criminal. They're going to regard him as a criminal, arrest him as a criminal, and execute him as a criminal. Therefore, this will fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah, which Jesus quotes, he was numbered with the transgressors. When that happens, he is warning them that just as his opponents do the worst to him, they will do the same to his followers. Once they think that they have rid the earth of Jesus, they will shift their attention to his disciples. His presence with his people continues, but not physically. And our mission continues, but not popularly, as, as it was received by Israel in the past. And so Jesus was telling them that they must use wisdom and they must make certain preparations, financial, material, and defensive preparations. The thing that stands out is what he says about the sword. The sword would have many uses for them in their missionary travels, from cutting wood to defending themselves against wild animals, to even warding off robbers along the way. But even as they will take these things into their mission going forward, they must remember that none of these things, not money, not material provision, not the sword, none of it is the power of the people of God. None of it is really, truly our defense. And three things stand out that are... Well, three things right here and then one later on show us that the disciples really misunderstand what Jesus is saying, particularly about the sword, because that's what they latch on to, right? They're like, oh, sweet, swords. We got swords. And three things show they misunderstand. Number one, 
all throughout this supper, they have misunderstood. They have spoken foolishly. We talked about two of these things last week, where they boast, first of all, about their greatness. Then Peter, along with the other disciples, boasts about their endurance. All of it is spoken so foolishly. And now they're talking about the sword. And again, they're speaking foolishly. They're wrong. Second thing, when they indicate that they have these two swords on hand, Jesus' response is, it is enough. And he is not saying, yeah, two swords are sufficient. Obviously, they wouldn't be sufficient. Really, he is not requiring them whatsoever in the service of the gospel. He's not saying that they would be sufficient. He is saying, rather, enough of this talk. And I think that perhaps the translation should be altered here to better reflect that because it makes us think, yeah, he's saying, okay, two swords is all that we need. That's not what he is saying. He's saying enough with this talk. Third, when they do actually wield the sword in the garden, how does Jesus respond? He says, no more of this, verse 51. We didn't read that yet, but he says, no more of this. And according to Matthew's account, he further says, those who take the sword will perish by the sword. And then let me throw in another thing, a fourth thing, not from this passage right here, but from later on in Luke's writings. When we get into the book of Acts, nowhere once do we see in all of their travels and in all of their sufferings, mention of a sword, except what is used against them. Their enemies take up the sword against them, but they never retaliate in kind. So Jesus is not saying that the sword is to be used in the service of the gospel. So on this night, they misunderstand him. What is our power? What is our defense as the people of God? It is prayer. It is only prayer. On this night, the disciples don't pray. And therefore, they succumb to the temptation Jesus warned them about. They prove themselves to be weak. But Jesus does pray. He overcomes the temptation. He prevails and He proves Himself strong for our salvation. And in the process of doing this, and and what I think is really... It is a beautiful scene, but at the same time, it's such an ugly scene. But Jesus shows Himself to be awesome. He shows Himself to be glorious. Praying people always look awesome to the people of God. Even as we're praying upon our deathbed. Because as we persevere in prayer, we are showing Christ to be gloriously alive in us even on our dying day. Let's look at verse 40 again. Our verses 39 and 40. And he came out and went as was his custom. This is what he had been doing all week long. Every night he'd return to the Mount of Olives with his disciples. As was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, this is their meeting place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And we know that in this great crisis, this is where the disciples so greatly fail. Prayer is the way that the rebel heart gives in to God 
the way that the foolish heart gets wisdom, the dull heart comes to life, the captive heart breaks free, the weak heart gets strong. This is the way that the wayward get back into line. It's through prayer. Prayer is how we fight through the gauntlet of fears and all the obstacles against us spiritually. And it's the way that we wrestle our disobedient hearts into submission to the will of God. Jesus has such a rich, ongoing... I wish I could put this in a different way. Prayer life that I have to ask, is there any way that you can look more like Jesus than to entrust yourself continually to God in prayer? Is there any way that you can look more like Christ? And you might say, well, love. Well, you're not going to love without prayer first. That's all I would say to that. This is the way we look like Christ. This is what He models for us. So let us behold Him. Let us believe in Him for all of our salvation and become as He is. One writer of this passage or commenting on this passage wisely noted, battles are won or lost on the field of prayer. But even prayer can be a battle. As the disciples show us, even prayer can be a great struggle. But we must pray. You know, this this morning, earlier, when Ray was teaching us in Sunday school, he mentioned that after a significant spiritual success, you may might go go through a significant temptation that just follows it up. And just to be transparent here for a moment, the last time that I preached at length on prayer, which wasn't but a few months ago, um, I found prayer after preaching through it to be a great, great struggle and for quite a while. But we must pray. Because our spiritual life depends on it. Verses 41 and 42 now. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Do not forget that Jesus was human. Fully human. So in this moment, we see him wrestling against very human, very normal temptations. His very human desire at this moment is that he might accomplish the salvation of God's people in another way besides drinking the cup of God's judgment against sin. Think of what he is going to suffer at the cross. He will bear all of the blame. To use the words of Romans 8, God will condemn our sin in Jesus' flesh. He will cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what He must bear. That's what He must suffer. That is what He is agonizing over. There will never be another agony like His at Calvary. But listen, He has a greater desire 
than escaping God-forsakenness. He would rather suffer than sin against God. He would rather suffer than sin. Look at his first words and look at his last words. His first word is, Father, if you are willing. And his final word is, not my will, but yours be done. Your will. He starts with your will and he ends with your will. It's the first and the final word of his prayer because it's the first and final desire of his heart. Even as he wrestles against to overcome the other desire that is tempting him, his first and his last desire is the will of God so that Jesus Christ, he would rather be forsaken by heaven and earth and he would rather pass through hell in obedience to God than reign all alone. What a Savior we have. Do you long to belong to a Savior like this? Do you rejoice that you belong to Him and that He is yours forevermore? Let's continue. Verse 43. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven strengthening Him. Let me make a couple notes about prayer and Luke's gospel over the the scope of the whole narrative. Whenever we see uh, Jesus praying in Luke's gospel, it's a sign that we are on the verge of something historically massive in the drama of redemption. Remember, he prayed in the river and the unseen world opened to us and God declared from heaven over his son, You are my beloved son. He gave witness to him. And then remember, after Jesus prayed on the river in time, he prayed on the mountain. And in the cloud of glory, the father transfigured his son, showing, to use Luke's words, the dazzling white of the glory of Christ that was hidden beneath. And now we have Jesus praying after the river and the mountain. We see him praying in the garden. And as the Father witnessed to the Son, and the Father transfigured the Son, so now we see the Father strengthening His Son to go to the cross and drink the cup of divine judgment completely dry that is against His people. He strengthens Him to go to the cross and to endure it. And being in agony, He prayed more earnestly and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Matthew records Jesus saying to his disciples in chapter 26, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. There is a condition in which blood capillaries supplying the sweat glands can burst under extreme emotional distress. It's uh, something, uh, obviously a very rare condition, but something known even to us, even today. And when that happens, blood mingles with perspiration. But Luke says, so we can't be sure that this is what Jesus experienced because every word is God-breathed and Luke says his sweat was like great drops of blood. Actually, 
I lean, I lean toward that Jesus experienced this condition, but we cannot be sure. But we do know that the agony that he experiences in his soul in this time makes him so profusely sweat that it is rolling off him like blood from an open wound. Perhaps even at this very moment, he can hear the tramping of the boots making their way down the path in the night under the olive trees. If you think that Jesus looks weak in this moment, it's because He is. He is weak. How can you say that, Brother Mike? He's human. He is fully human. When He tires, which is a weakness, He needs sleep. When He hungers and thirsts, which is human weakness, He needs food and He needs water. Jesus has human weakness without our corruption, without our sin. So He was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He has human weakness. At the same time, remember we have this one person with two natures in the one individual. Divine nature, He is fully God. And human nature, He is fully human. So at the very moment that this temple guard and the chief priests and the elders are coming at Him with their swords and with their clubs, He holds them up. They can't find the path without His sustaining them. They can't make their feet go and get to Him except he sustains them. Even as He is humanly weak and needy, needing His Father and needing the empowering of the Holy Spirit, He sustains all the world by the Word of His power. That's our God. So He sustains all things and yet in this moment, fully human, He cries out, Father, help me. Help me. This is our God. It's so stupid that we might think that we could come up with this. This is of God. Jesus Christ is God. The Son of God and our salvation. Verses 45 and 46. And when He rose from prayer, He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And He said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke is the only one. Matthew and Mark also write about this incident. But Luke is the only one that they sleep for sorrow, which might seem strange, but grief can exhaust a person. And they have a lot of grief because they know that something terrible is going down on this night. Also, they don't know what it's going to be and they're confused. They have a lot of ignorance too. How can something terrible happen? So they go to sleep, exhausted from the day, exhausted from their grief. Peter's blade at his side and Peter's blade in his plans. But despite what they are thinking, 
The sword offers no real defense on this night. Not that the sword can't draw blood. Peter's going to prove it's very effective at drawing blood. But this is not their defense because they have an enemy that is stalking their souls. And he has only interest in their flesh and their blood as it will allow him to get to their souls. And there is no material sword that is effective against our adversary. What is their power? Where does their defense lie? It's in the very thing that Jesus told them to do, the very thing that they neglect. It's in prayer. Prayer is the power of the people of God. This is our defense. Against all of our adversaries, it's our defense. Whether they are flesh and blood or not, as Ephesians 6 tells us, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual authorities, against the prince of the power of the air, and so on. We need prayer. But it is our defense against every adversary in any predicament, at all times, even in death, This is where our power lies. Praying doesn't mean that you're going to live. It doesn't mean that you're not going to die. But if you pray, it means that you will die well. Even if you battle through all kinds of fear and doubt in the process, if you pray, you will die well. And if you pray the true prayer of faith, it also means you will rise. As our Savior did, so will we. Verses 47 and 48. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Let me quote from James Edwards. Luke records only two instances of Jesus being kissed. By the sinful woman, remember back in Luke 7, one who was so sorrowful over her sin, weeping at the feet of Jesus. By the sinful woman and by Judas. The kiss of the sinful outsider that's what the woman was, ironically epitomizes love and faith, whereas the kiss of the chosen insider epitomizes betrayal. Think of what Judas has. I I think it's what he has always been, but now it's just all the true colors are coming out. So that the, the sign of love and the sign of welcome, that's what the kiss is. The sign of love and welcome becomes in the one who has sold his soul to Satan the sign of hatred and betrayal. This is what sin has done in Judas's heart. So that even love has become evil and has the look of the devil. So that he is using Jesus to feed his idols. He is using Jesus to his fleshly advantage. I think that Judas has always meant to use Jesus for his own personal gain. But when that was disappointed, as Jesus kept stressing persecution and so on, well, 
after Satan had entered him, now Judas is so emboldened in his sin that he will even betray the Lord of life over to death. But look at how Jesus responds. When he, when he comes back to his disciples and he says, why are you sleeping? And in his first talk to his enemies, look at how resolute Jesus Christ is right now. How calm. Now Jesus will be their captive, right? They will bind him. They will lead him away. They will take him to the cross. He is their captive, but at the same time, he's not. Because he is captive to the will of God. He will go to the cross free. Free in the will of God and triumphant. We have seen him staggering under the weight of temptation and under the weight of the agony that is coming upon him. But now we have, we see Jesus with astonishing strength because he has prevailed in prayer. This is the way God's children prevail. It is through prayer. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? It's not really a question. It's kind of rhetorical because they don't even wait for an answer. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. When we don't entrust ourselves to God in prayer, where does our defense come from? Where does our strength come from? It's in ourselves. We have to depend on ourselves. We have to take matters into our own hands. That's, that's just default. If we're not praying, we're trusting in ourselves. But what happens if you don't trust and trust yourself to God in prayer? You make your own way. What happens? What happens if you get what you wanted? You know, you get the favor, you reach the goal that you desired, you get your hands on it. You haven't prevailed. You have still failed. And what happens is that you have set yourself up to trust God less and continue to trust yourself more. That's what happens when we don't pray. If you strike out on your own to put your best foot forward in your own strength, it spells spiritual disaster. And vice versa. The corresponding thing is true as well. If you entrust yourself to God in prayer and you don't end up reaching the goal that you wanted, whatever it was, and it looks like loss and you look weak even and if you suffer because you have prayed and walked the way of God you have not failed you have truly prevailed you have caused the enemy to run he has not struck you by the power of God you have struck him our enemy satan you win no matter what happens, if you pray. What does Jesus say in response to the disciples taking measures into their own hands? Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. It's such a, this is a very easy thing to gloss over. Just another miracle. This is a, this is a wondrous miracle. 
Jesus is going to come back. I mean, in the unknown future. He is going to come back and He is going to judge and He is going to conquer all of His enemies. But this is not the day. This is not the hour. And thank God for two millennia, it is still the day of our salvation. Jesus comes commanding repentance, promising salvation, warning of judgment, and displaying such a glorious love that sinners, enemies of God, every last one of them, these sinners, in response to this glorious display of love, come to Jesus Christ in droves. Because how could you not want Him to triumph? How could you not want to be on His side and belong to Him forever? This is a wondrous miracle. The the human instinct is to take up the sword, raise your hand against your enemy, and at the very least, lop off an ear. But when Jesus raises His hand to His adversary, it is not to strike Him, it is to heal Him. It is not to curse Him, it is to bless Him. Last couple of verses now. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against Him, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. How can you arrest a man and put him on trial? And how can you torture a man? And how can you execute, crucify a man on the other side who heals the wounded on your side? It's only hatred. There is no wrong in Jesus that would justify anything that they do. And that's why they don't arrest Him during the day. Because there is nothing that they may charge Him with. No charge that can stick. He is absolutely blameless. He is not condemnable whatsoever. It is only hatred. And look at look at the different groups that are gathered here. You have the chief priests, the religious powers. You have the officers, the military powers. And you have the elders of the people, the civil powers. All of these different realms of authority who have sold themselves, every last one of them, over to Satan. So that they are doing His will and His agenda. Just like the Bible says. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. They are doing Satan's bidding. I just thought these uh, two comments that I want to give to you from James Edwards and David Garland were so fitting response to this. James Edwards says, they are free to kill God's son and servant, and they will, but they are not free to determine the consequences of killing him. And David Garland says, the puppets of the power of darkness cannot know that God will take their presumed triumph in snuffing out Jesus' life on the cross and will turn it into salvation. This is just um, an amazing 
seen. And what an amazing Savior we have. The beauty of Jesus that comes out in this passage to those souls who have the eyes of their hearts open to see Him, the beauty is staggering beauty. What a Savior we have. Behold Him. Believe in Him for all of your salvation and become as He is. He has showed us the way to live. We only prevail if we pray. If we are as well as can be or as weak as can be, we prevail as God's people if we pray. And I think what is so strange here, I mean that this this passage and the, the look into the heart of Jesus has so much appeal for the people of God. There's so much to admire that would captivate us it's strange because on one hand, it's such an ugly scene. He stumbles away from his disciples in the night. His body drops to the ground, heaves with sobs, and is profuse with sweat. As he contemplates the agony of the cross, he is going to bear his soul to the judgment of God all of the distress and fury, and drink the cup of God's judgment dry. He's going to bear his soul to the judgment of God and surrender his body to the judgment of the world. So there is sweat and there is blood and there is tears this night and there is going to be sweat and blood and tears mingling all together, even worse on the day following. But his prayer... Father, not my will, but yours be done. Submission has the first and the final word because submission to God is the first desire of his heart. Is it yours? Is it the first desire of your heart? Then no matter what happens, no matter matter how heavy your burden, no matter how great the agony of any trial, you may say, in the power of the Spirit of Christ, not my will, but yours be done. And then you can rise from your prayer changed, resolute, and even through your tears still singing the songs of joy to the Lord. You can be strong. So draw near to Him. Why wouldn't you want to? What a Savior we have. Draw near to Him. Entrust yourself to God in prayer. Lay your life down to His will because He is all that you and I need. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, I pray that each and every one here would give themselves wholly up to Your will. With our whole person, heart and mind, soul and strength. Today and tomorrow, may we entrust ourselves fully to You. I pray, Father, that we would give to You, cast all of our burden upon the Lord, knowing that You will sustain us. That is Your promise. Your steadfast love is better than life. So even if in our weakness we go down and we die, 
I pray, Father, that we would cry out to you and we would trust you. We know that we will rise. Being in Christ, we are going where he is. We share in his reward. So every day, Father, help my church family to trust you and to pray. And I pray that no one would take their joy from them. In Jesus' name I pray for your help. Amen.